This program is sponsored by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in astrophysics, nanoscience, and neuroscience. The Kavli Prize is a partnership among the Norwegian Academy of Science and Letters, the Norwegian Ministry of Education and Research, and the U.S.-based Kavli Foundation in Los Angeles, California. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Inflation is a a proposed answer to the question, what was the bang of the Big Bang? In the sense of what propelled the Big Bang? What is it that drove the universe into this period of gigantic expansion, which we're still experiencing, the universe is still expanding? Uh, What was the force that caused that to happen? Alan Guth was trying to figure out how to turn his PhD in physics from MIT into a permanent job when he had a flash of inspiration and came up with what may be the most audacious and mind-boggling idea in all of science. The idea was that our universe, starting from a tiny speck, inflated into the beginnings of what it is today in an incomprehensibly brief instant, the bang of the Big Bang. Even more astonishing, it seems to be true. And in the same kind of startling instant, Alan went from being a wandering grad student to one of the most sought-after physicists in the world. Among his many awards is the 2014 Kavli Prize in Astrophysics. He spoke to me via Zoom from his home in Boston. Alan, this is so great to be able to talk with you today. I, you, you have stimulated my thinking so much, that part of it that I understand. <laughs> I'm hoping to understand a little more today. You know, I hear so much from scientists who do groundbreaking work that there's a special feeling that they get when they discover something and they realize they know something about nature that nobody else knows. Did, have, did you have a feeling like that? Was there a moment where things came together for you like that? Uh, yeah, there, there very much was. Uh, it was uh, late at night in December of 1979 uh, when I uh, was studying the behavior of a certain kind of universe model uh, and uh, realized that the uh, mechanism that I was looking at meant that at one second after the Big Bang, uh, the expansion rate had to have been just right uh, to an accuracy of one part in 10 to the 14th, the one part and one followed by 14 zeros. And there was no explanation for why the universe was expanding at exactly that rate. Uh, and this mechanism that I was working on, which came to be called inflation, uh, turned out to explain it. And I was tremendously excited. Um, I wrote down in my notebook, spectacular realization with the double box around it. (laughs) (laughs) And I was incredibly excited, but I I should say I was also uh, rather incredibly nervous about it because it certainly seemed too good to be true. Uh, If it was this simple, why hadn't dozens of other people thought about it, thought of it before? How long did it take? for that nervous feeling where you were challenging the idea that you were so excited by? How long did it take for that to sink in? Um, I guess it took uh, certainly several months. 
I, I think the main thing that ultimately gave me confidence in the idea uh, was the fact that I went around giving talks about it uh, and other physicists uh, became excited about it and didn't see anything wrong with it. What is it actually? What What is inflation? How would you describe it so I can get it? Sure, sure. Uh, inflation uh, is a, a proposed answer to the question, what was the bang of the Big Bang uh, in the sense of what propelled the Big Bang? What is it that drove the universe into this period of gigantic expansion, which we're still experiencing? The universe is still expanding. Uh, what was the force that caused that to happen? Uh, and inflation uh, proposes an answer, uh, which is that the force uh, that propelled the Big Bang uh, was, in fact, a repulsive form of gravity. Now, I, as I understand it, inflation happened in an extremely short period of time and expanded the universe from the size of something that it weighed a gram. Right, you've got it right. A gram to something huge, almost where we are now, or something closer to where we are now than a gram. And a tiny, tiny fraction of a second, right? That's right, that's right. Maybe, well, we don't really know the numbers precisely, but something like 10 to the minus 30 seconds. I think it was a revelation to me, and check me out if I got this right, that nothing travels faster through space than light, but the universe was expanding way, way faster than light. Yeah, because, that is because true. space itself was expanding. It wasn't something wasn't something traveling through it. Yeah, no, those are exactly the right words. Uh, general relativity allows space itself to stretch, uh, and general relativity has a firm limit on how fast things can move through space. That is limited by the speed of light. Uh, but general relativity has no limit to how fast space itself can expand. So, how fast was it expanding? Was it doubling every every unit of time, or yeah, more? Yeah, no, you're exactly it, right. It had. Did it have to? It had to double at least double, and maybe even more than double, or what? Uh, that's right. The expansion was exponential, which meant that it doubled and redoubled and redoubled. Uh, for inflation to succeed, it needs about a hundred doublings, uh, and how long each doubling takes depends on different versions of the theory, uh, but uh, something like uh, 10 to the minus 35 seconds. You know, I remember when I first understood the power of doubling, it was a shock. And I mm -hmm. think it is to most people who haven't come up against it. I was reading a story about the emperor wanted to reward the guy who had invented chess. And he said, what can I give you? So the guy took a, the chessboard. He said, just put one grain of wheat or something on, on yeah. the first square. And on the next square, put two grains. Next square, put four grains. Keep doubling until you get to the end. And when he got to the end and covered all the squares, how much grain was at stake? Uh, well, I think far more than exists in the universe. <laughs> yeah. It was just unbelievable what exponentials do. This is an extraordinary idea, this idea of inflation. 
Do you have any way of finding proof, any kind of proof that it actually exists? Well, uh, the answer is yes. And I have to admit that when I first uh, started thinking about inflation, uh, it uh, certainly sounds to me like a great idea and a very plausible explanation for how various features of the universe came to be. But I never really thought there would be actual tests. But it turns out that the experimenters have astounded me. Uh, the most precise tests, I think, uh, come from precise measurements of the cosmic microwave background. Uh, Which is radiation. what? What is, the, what is the cosmic background? It's, it's radiation that we receive from all directions in the sky, uh, which we interpret as the afterglow of the heat of the Big Bang. So it really gives us an image of the details of what exactly the Big Bang looked like. Uh, the cosmic microwave background radiation is almost completely uniform in all directions. Uh, the uh, intensity of the radiation is uniform to a few parts in 100,000. Um, but it turns out that the very clever experimenters have figured out how to make measurements much more precise than that. Uh, so they see a whole pattern of small hot spots and cold spots. Just, uh, and inflation makes predictions for what this pattern of ripples in the cosmic microwave background should look like. Uh, and those patterns really match up uh, almost exactly uh, with what inflation predicts. And uh, to me, that's just totally mind-boggling. Uh, I never would have thought it could be measured. I find totally remarkable. Speaking of the universe, it's still shocking to most of us to think that you take seriously the hypothesis that there's more than one universe. And when I first heard about multiverses or the multiverse, I thought, well, we're in our universe. We occupy our space and time. And if there's another universe, it must be outside of ours somewhere. And there must be some kind of non-space between us, some kind of vacuum that's a real vacuum and nothing in it. But I don't get the impression that's the way you look at the multiverse. Well, there are actually many different theories of the multiverse, and we, of course, don't know that a multiverse exists. Uh, but the version of multiverse theory that I work on uh, is based on inflation. Uh, it turns out that once inflation starts, it never completely stops. Uh, what happens is inflation stops in places and produces essential universes. In this context, uh, we call them pocket universes to indicate that they're not everything that exists. Uh, but these pocket universes are as big as the universe we see, or much bigger even, perhaps. Uh, and uh, what happens is inflation stops in places, producing pocket universes, goes on in other places, uh, continuing to expand the space, uh, producing more and more pocket universes uh, as time goes on. And as far as we could tell within the theory, although we don't really know how far we should trust extrapolations of the theory, uh, but as far as we could tell within the theory, uh, this can go on literally forever, uh, producing uh, ultimately an infinite number of these pocket universes, each one of which would be as big as our universe, roughly speaking. You know, when you talk about expansion happening more in some places than in others, 
the picture that, that occurs in my mind is a river with eddies. And th those eddies become discrete objects of, on their own, regardless of the flow of the river. The river keeps moving on, but something collects in a certain place. Is, is it something like that, do you think? I, I, I've never thought of that analogy, but it sounds to me like a good one. But here's what I, I don't get. I think I've heard you say that this pocket universe where, in my analogy, the, the swirl, that becomes its own universe, perhaps even bigger than ours. Where does it go? Does it get, is, it, is it in ours or does it get snipped off and go someplace else? Uh, it actually gets snipped off and goes someplace else. Um, one important feature of general relativity, which I think uh, everybody has trouble wrapping their brains around, uh, is that we're accustomed to the idea of thinking of space as fixed. Space is just there. There's no way to make any more space. There's no way to influence space as far as what we perceive. Uh, but in general relativity, space really is completely plastic and stretchable. Uh, so it's always possible for the system to produce more space uh, without displacing the previous space. Uh, more space just appears out of nowhere. Uh, and this is certainly allowed by general relativity. Uh, and in this theory of inflation, uh, it happens in a very big way. So space and all its weird properties are being created at this rapid pace. Uh, yeah, that's right. If, if this theory is right, uh, not here, but elsewhere, way out there, uh, space is still doubling every 10 to the minus 35 seconds or, or so. Well, it's getting really big, really fast. That's right. It's, it's, it's uh, totally unbelievable. So, I mean, I'm interested in this idea of the pocket universe. If we were really smart, can we create our own pocket universe in the lab? Uh, th that's a very interesting question. Uh, in fact, it is something I've worked on in the past. Uh, but I have to admit that at the present time, the best answer I can give you is a very definite maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what would be the recipe? I don't quite know. What, what, uh, do you can, what do you think would have to happen to be able to do that? Right. Okay. The, the issue is that um, we've determined that according to the laws of classical physics, and by that I mean physics without quantum theory, uh, according to the laws of classical physics, it appears not to be possible. However, uh, the real laws of physics, of course, are quantum mechanical. Uh, and uh, through a process of quantum mechanical tunneling, it's called, uh, it's conceivable that we can make a new pocket universe in the laboratory. Uh, and it won't, issues, it, it won't make this present universe explode? Uh, no, it will not. It's, it's not completely clear if this is possible, but it's fairly clear what would happen if it was possible. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And, um, and that's because there's a step in the process that involves issues we don't understand. But once it gets over that step, it comes back to physics that we think we do understand. Uh, so if it did happen, uh, this new universe 
uh, would not displace our universe, uh, but rather would uh, create its own space and literally pinch off from our universe and completely lose contact with our universe. Where does it go? Where, where do these pocket universes go, whether they're created in a lab someday or in right. Re, right now in reality? Where, where is right. it? Where do they go? Right. Well, that's the, uh, the, the problem with human intuition, uh, that we can't conceive of space as being anything but a, a fixed background, which is how we think about space. Uh, but in general relativity, uh, space is totally plastic and bendable. So it literally just creates a new splotch of space completely disconnected from the space that we that we know of. So the question of where does it go is just not a well-defined question. It creates its own space that never existed before. And and that space isn't in our space. It sounds like it's that's right. It's, it's not in our space. It's completely disconnected from our space. And there's it's no way but then it splits off. Is there any way to communicate with it? Uh, we believe not. Um, although there is a possible exception to that, um, not really for a, a universe that we would create, but for other pocket universes in this multiverse idea. Uh, if pocket universes are being created all over the place through this process of inflation, uh, there's a chance that occasionally two of them can collide with each other. Uh, and uh, when that happens, is that catastrophic for, for uh, other universes? Um, it's not catastrophic for other universes. In most cases, it would be catastrophic for at least those parts of the two universes that collided. Uh -huh. uh, but there are circumstances under which it would not be catastrophic, although I think they're rare. Um, so it is conceivable uh, that our universe may have collided with another pocket universe in the past, and it's possible to look for signs of that. So uh, what, would, what do you think would be a sign of that? That's interesting. Right, right. Uh, a, a sign of that would be a circular pattern in the cosmic microwave background radiation, radiation that appears to us to come from the Big Bang two pocket universes, each of which would be spherical. And when they collide, two spheres, when they touch each other, intersect on a circle. And that would show up as a, a circle on the sky. Uh, and people have looked for it. And uh, nobody's found anything definitive, although people have found uh, some, quote, candidates. Uh, but that just means something that we, we don't know is not <laughs> the sign of a collision. We certainly have not seen any signs of a collision. Okay, I'm going to use my my ignorance and my lag in understanding to try to get a clearer picture of what you're saying. If they're out of touch with our space, these po other pocket universes, out of touch with our space, and they can collide somehow, it sounds like there's something in between them that's not space. But that doesn't sound like what you're saying. Yeah, sorry. I wasn't careful enough to distinguish between two cases. Uh, the case of a pocket universe that we would create in a laboratory really does completely split off. And then there just is no contact and no possibility of a collision either, as far as we know. 
but two pocket universes both produced during the process of eternal inflation, uh, it's a different situation. They actually are still part of one big space and they could collide. And yet, although they're part of the same space we occupy, we don't see them unless they collide and then we see a circle in the sky? Exactly, exactly. When we come back, Alan Guth tells me how his search for the origin of everything has given him insights into the search for purpose and meaning in life. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in astrophysics, nanoscience, and neuroscience that transform our understanding of the very big, the very small, and the very complex. From scientific breakthroughs like the discovery of CRISPR-Cas9 and the detection of gravitational waves to inventing new fields of research, Kavli Prize laureates push the limits of what we don't know and advance science in ways that could not have been imagined. The Kavli Prize is a partnership among the Norwegian Academy of Science and Letters, the Norwegian Ministry of Education and Research, and the U.S.-based Kavli Foundation in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation's mission is to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The foundation supports basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience through a constellation of Kavli institutes at academic universities internationally and through programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters science, interacts with it, and uses science in their daily lives. I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, you can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on a virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show. Bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer Graham Chet and I put the shows together. Plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free. But you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Alda Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid. On December 14th, 2020, End Blindness will make history by awarding the first ever Sanford and Sue Greenberg Prize to End Blindness. Thirteen pioneering scientists will share $3 million in prizes for their groundbreaking scientific and medical contributions to end blindness permanently and universally. 
The Greenberg Prize Award Ceremony, which will stream online, brings together luminaries from arts, sciences, entertainment, and politics, including Art Garfunkel, Margaret Atwood, Al Gore, Michael Bloomberg, and more. The award ceremony will also feature a moving tribute to the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a longtime supporter of the End Blindness Movement, including extensive footage of Justice Ginsburg reading from Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, the memoir of End Blindness 2020 co-founder Sanford D. Greenberg. If you want to learn more about End Blindness, you can read about it in Hello, Darkness, My Old Friend. And for a special treat, you can listen to the book read by Art Garfunkel. For more, go to SanfordGreenberg.com. Join us on December 14th, 2020 at 7 p.m. Eastern at www.EndBlindness2020.com to be a part of this historic moment. That's EndBlindness2020.com. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Alan Guth. So when, when all of this in our own universe, this gram of stuff that became everything we know, when it was just a gram of stuff, there was some moment when inflation started. Do you know right. why it would have started? We don't really. We don't really have a good prehistory for inflation, is the bottom line. Uh, the beauty of the theory is that once inflation starts, uh, the laws of physics that we think we understand take over uh, and really drive the expansion in a very definite way, which hardly depends at all on how exactly it started. So that sounds like the possibility that a new egg hatching, a new gram becoming another universe would would have the same laws of physics that we have? Or does it allow for different kinds of sets of laws? A very interesting question. And the answer is kind of nuanced. Uh, in principle, if we could make enough measurements at high enough energies, we would see the same laws of physics everywhere. But what we would see at the energies where we actually make experiments could be very different in different pocket universes. And you know, very different, I really do mean very different. Uh, they're, they're the whole spectrum of the whole set of types of particles that exist could be different. Uh, uh, the way those particles interact could be completely different. Uh, even the dimensionality of space could conceivably be different from one pocket universe to another. We live in three dimensions of space, uh, but that might not be the same everywhere. A, a good analogy might be living in air versus living in ice. Uh, in principle, the laws of physics are the same in air as they are in ice. But if you are living inside an ice cube and do not have enough energy to melt the ice cube, so the ice cube appeared to be just a fixed piece of your surroundings, uh, you would have a very different idea about what the laws of physics are than you would if you were living in air. What's so interesting to me as you talk you, you speak in images and language that's very much available to me as a non-mathematician. And I wonder how you think when you think about it. Are you thinking in images? Are you thinking in math? Are you thinking in some combination or in some other way? How do you, how do yeah. you explore these ideas? <laughs> right, right. Um, I think... Um well, I think the most successful explorations are, uh, are are in the equations. Uh, 
And certainly when I came across the idea of inflation itself, uh, it was from looking at the equations. Uh, and the equations told me what, to me at the time, was a, this incredibly surprising thing and caused the universe to expand exponentially. Uh, that was mind-boggling to me uh, and has tremendous consequences, it turns out. Uh, well, certainly, I also think in images. I also think in, in words. Uh, physicists do use words. <laughs> Am I right that Einstein thought very much in images? Uh, yeah, I think that's right. And also very much in terms of uh, thought experiments. Uh, right. And I think all physicists do. Not as well as Einstein, but we all try. What about the rest of us? Do you find that we're as interested in the origins of the universe or the cosmos as you are? Do you find that they want to know more or they tolerate your explanations? <laughs> well, of course, it depends who I'm talking to, but I do find the fact that, I and mean, I think it's a fact that most human beings really are fascinated with the origin of the universe. Um, I think there's a reason why the Bible begins with the book of Genesis, which describes the origin of the universe in biblical terms. Uh, I think it's clear that from the beginning, uh, human civilization was uh, fascinated with the question of where did we all come from? And I think, uh, you know, many, many different human civilizations over time have invented their own creation myths. Uh, which I think does indicate a very fundamental desire that humans have to figure out where we came from. You said something in passing in an interview that really caught my ear. You said, we give life its significance. What, what, in that moment, what were you thinking? I was trying to answer a question that some nasty person asked from the audience. But uh, w what I mean is that I think uh, that, that, you know, I believe that what exists is the physical world. I don't believe that uh, there's any evidence for anything supernatural. Uh, so I don't want to believe that that makes life meaningless. I certainly don't feel that life is meaningless at all. I think life has a very real purpose. Uh, but I think we have to accept the idea that the purpose of life is the purpose that we give it. Uh, and uh, that includes, I think, the, the search for truth, which is part of what physics is about, uh, the desire to make a better world for all human beings. And uh, I think the important thing is to, from my point of view, personally, uh, is to realize that we are responsible for, for setting these goals uh, and for being happy when we partially achieve them. It's interesting that you arrive at that because you could say if life is just a collection of particles and it happened in this sort of mysterious but mechanical way where inflation took over and it's going to keep going and we came into existence and everything, or we and everything around us will go out of existence. It's easy to think that things are meaningless. What difference does it make what you do? You can't affect the universe. It's on its own track. Mm -hmm. But you 
you, it is in a way feel that we have a responsibility, it sounds like, to be aware of our ability to create meaning. Uh, yeah, I do. Uh, certainly everything you said about the universe is true. Uh, the universe is, uh, even if all that exists is what we see, and inflation suggests there's vastly more, uh, what we see is uh, you know, 10 billion galaxies, each of which contain 10 billion stars. Uh, the universe is just unbelievably big. Uh, and we're just a tiny, tiny speck in the universe. Uh, so I think it's pretty clear that we don't have any cosmic significance, uh, but that does not mean that we do not have earthly significance. Uh, and I feel that what happens here on Earth is certainly important to us, uh, and that that's all that matters. I think we can indeed give true meaning to our own lives. It's as though a common enemy can sometimes bring us all together. And here the common enemy is the <laughs> end of existence. <laughs> right. We might as right. well band together and make something happen that's worthwhile. Yes. This has, been a, this has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, I think we're coming to the end of it in terms of the time and space that's available to us. <laughs> But we usually end our shows with seven quick questions that okay. invite, they're not gotcha questions. They're, they're generally sort of vaguely related to communication. And the first question may seem odd coming after our conversation, but you might come up with a surprising answer. What do you wish you really understood? Oh, oh. well, uh, if you let me answer in vague terms, it's, it's, uh, the, uh, the physics of the universe. Uh, how was the universe actually created? Uh, what are the underlying laws of physics that allowed the universe to become created? And maybe even the bigger question of where did those underlying laws of physics come from in the first place, which I think we really just have no idea about. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? <laughs> One tries to do it politely. <laughs> 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 but it almost never works anyway. So yeah, that's, really that's, that's, I was waiting I for that part. Try to be polite. <laughs> <laughs> What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Uh, I think you just asked it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How do you stop a compulsive talker? <laughs> that is. Uh, that's a. I think it's something I've never really found the solution to. If, if, if you figure it out sometime, tell me. So that, um, I sometimes so, do end up listening to people for God knows how long. So um, that, that question and the universe. That's, <laughs> that's right, that question and the universe. The questions <laughs> I really like to know the answer to. <laughs> now, let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a real conversation with that person? Um, well, I'm not very good at it, I suppose. Um, uh, I think the best way is to try, ask some questions to try to find out what, what the person is about, what the person does, what the person is interested in. Um, and uh, I think how to start the opening question depends a little bit on whether or not you know anything at all about the person. Right, right. What gives you confidence? Well, it depends on the day. I don't always have confidence. <laughs> When you have it, what but, you but on days when I do have confidence, uh, I think the confidence comes 
from the fact that I do have a, a lot of colleagues and students and friends, uh, all of whom are on the same wavelength that I am, uh, all trying to understand the universe and physics and what's around us. Okay, last question. What book changed your life? Hmm. I think probably the answer to that is a book that I read, uh, I think when I was in high school, but I forget when, uh, a book about special relativity. Uh, I think it was called The Universe and Dr. Einstein. Uh, and I think the author's name was Lincoln Barnett. Uh, and it was a very good popular level discussion. I don't remember now what was actually in the book, uh, but it got me very interested in ideas of theoretical physics and how weird theoretical physics could be. And I became hooked on it. Makes me very happy to hear that a book on a popular explanation of physics inspired you to get into a field that is decidedly beyond the realm of those of us in the popular audience and provided even more stuff to convey to us in a popular way, which you're so good at. So I, I really have enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much. Okay, and likewise, I've certainly enjoyed very much talking to you, Alan. Thank you, Alan. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Alan Guth is the Victor Weisskopf Professor of Physics at MIT. Alan's the author of The Inflationary Universe, The Quest for a New Theory of Cosmic Origins. His many awards include the 2014 Kavli Prize in Astrophysics, and in 2005, he won a Boston Globe Prize for having the messiest office in the city. He was entered into the contest by colleagues who hoped it would shame him into tidying up. It didn't work. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Jared Diamond. He's probably best known as the author of the groundbreaking book, Guns, Germs, and Steel. His newest work, Upheaval, Turning Points for Nations in Crisis, could hardly be more timely. And yet, unexpectedly, in the nation's and the world's most urgent crisis, he finds hope. I'm coarsely optimistic that COVID is going to force the world to acknowledge that we have a global problem that requires a global solution. And once we've got a global solution for COVID, we will then have the model to seek a global solution for climate change and inequality and these other big problems. That's why I'm coarsely optimistic that this tragedy of COVID may, for the first time, motivate the world to adopt global approaches to global problems. Jared Diamond, interestingly, applying lessons learned from his psychologist wife to the crises facing the world. Next time on Clear and Vivid. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, 
or wherever you like to listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.